Hey everybody, today Nate and I talk with Shelly Anna Meyer. She's a counselor um, in marriage and couples counseling, family therapy. Uh, she does individual work as well with disordered eating and body image issues. And she uses a framework called intuitive eating, which is what we're talking about today. And it's really a framework that tries to get you to change your relationship with food and exercise and just like kind of diet and fitness culture in general. She's got a lot of interesting things to say um, about diet culture, fitness culture, uh, kind of gender differences um, that we may or may not be aware of. Certainly I wasn't aware of uh, some of them anyway. And uh, yeah, a lot of interesting things to say. I, I think you're really going to like this one. It's certainly, I think, one of our favorites so far. Um, very smart woman, also a very dear friend of ours. So we might be a little biased here, um, but uh yeah, she's got a lot of really kind of insightful um, things she wants to talk about. So let's get into it. Okay, we're talking with Shelly Annemeyer today. Uh, Shelly's a good friend of ours. She's also a therapist um, with marriage and relationship counseling um, and individual counseling as well. She's also trained in intuitive eating, and that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. I got Nate with us too. Um, Hello. Shelly, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. Doing well. Thank uh, you. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit more, um, I guess, about what you do, um, mostly on the intuitive eating side, because that's what we're going to be talking about. But you kind of act as our, our therapist anyway. So, you know, you can talk about the, the relationship mm -hmm. stuff too. Um, <laughs> I am trained at, at, in marriage and family therapy um, and currently I'm pursuing licensure. So what that means is I'm under supervision right now for therapy. Um, <clears throat> and then I've been certified already in intuitive eating counseling or coaching. And that's a whole other separate certification process outside of the graduate program for marriage and family therapy, but was just a huge interest area and something that was personally really rewarding for me and a topic area that came up a lot with clients that I worked with in my internships and in my first couple of years in private practice as well, um, was a lot of women in particular struggling with disordered eating, body image, and that kind of stuff. So that's where the intuitive eating certification came in. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of these women, I mean, you, they were coming in for relationship counseling, mm -hmm. but you were finding that they had um, kind of disordered eating as well, huh? Well, a little different. So I work with couples and families a lot. And, um, you know, because of the marriage and family training, that's a lot of the clientele that comes through to work with me in private practice. But the most common person that seeks therapy are individual women. And a lot of times um, women are coming in to find relationship advice, but also for a whole ton of other issues. So, I mean, really common things that you hear about like anxiety, depression, and that kind of stuff. But I see a lot of clients that come in who are dealing with um, coping with trauma, as an example, um, perfectionism, <clears throat> dealing with really difficult, um, like self-criticism and that kind of stuff as well. And a lot of times with those issues, you might see, um, disordered eating patterns kind of popping up as well. So I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so like intuitive eating, can you give us, I, I've read a little bit about it. And when I go through these, uh, you know, there's these 10 principles of intuitive eating and, when you take a closer look at them, they all kind of make sense, almost as if they're, you know, intuitive, I guess. <laughs> ha ha ha. Oh! <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> can, give us an overview of what it is, though, because the approach is, it's not a new approach, right? No. They, Eleven Tri uh, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Reich, I think is how you say her last name, are the two original authors. And they built this framework back in the 90s, actually. And when they first wrote about it, it was grounded in research, but it wasn't evidence-based because it was new. And it didn't really pick up a lot of steam in the scientific world until, gosh, I would probably say the last five to 10 years, there's been a bigger interest and a lot more studies done. And so now it's an evidence-based um, sort of self-care eating framework, I guess is how you could put it, <clears throat> um, that is used a lot by nutritionists, uh, dietitians, therapists. It, it incorporates things that people are more familiar with nowadays, so like mindfulness and that kind of thing. 
Um, and so you hear a lot about like mindful eating, um, those kind and that, or like meditation practice that has a ton of, um, scientific backing and intuitive eating has incorporated that kind of stuff for a really long time as well. <clears throat> right. And then, so that's kind of like added to its popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's kind of helped with that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's a, it's a, it's a self-care eating framework is the best way to put it. And it's really grounded in the idea of, um, a major mindfulness principle or a major kind of meditation principle, which is called, um, interoceptive awareness. I don't know if you've heard of that phrase before, but that's like the real. <laughs> oh yeah. I that. yeah. <laughs> Why don't you tell everyone else what it means? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like this is something that you would have researched <laughs> given all of the stuff that you research, but it's the idea of like being aware of the signals that your body sends. So it's as simple as being able to say that like you have a full bladder, like that's interoceptive awareness, but it's how easily right. you can attune to those kinds of things. And, um, that's really one of the main parts of intuitive eating is learning how to tune in to the signals that your body is sending, but also removing obstacles that don't allow you to tune in to the way that your body is talking to you. Uh, okay. And what are some of those obstacles? Yeah. Uh, obstacles would be things like going on a diet. So when you okay. are um, actively pursuing dieting and you have, as an example, like a calorie target goal, Um, you start to focus more on caloric value of food. And so as you go through your day, you're uh, like allocating your calories for each your meal, your snack. And then when you hit the number, that's when you're supposed to stop eating. But what if you're still hungry? You are supposed to ignore that hunger cue. Or for some people, it works in the opposite. They might not be hungry anymore, but they may still have calories left over. And so then they eat to that number anyway. And so actively they're not paying attention anymore to their hunger and fullness signals. So that would be one. Right. So it's, it's encouraging you to kind of disconnect from your body, Mm -hmm. essentially just natural sensations in your body. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's stuff like, I mean, I don't know how much the two of you will relate to this because I feel like so much of the dieting um, messaging is, is towards women. I mean, ultimately I think women are hit a lot harder with this, although one in three people who have an eating disorder are men. Um, but I think the typical mainstream narrative is that, um, is that dieting is really like women are pursuing it at a much higher rate. And so like one of the little tricks that people will talk about is like, are you really hungry or do you just need to have a glass of water? And so that would be another like obstacle to being able to tune into your body of like saying, okay, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat versus, Ooh, am I, am my body saying I'm hungry, but I'm going to drink water to try to trick it into fullness because then my belly has a sensation of fullness and the body's smarter than that. And ultimately will, this is getting way farther into the science, but like, will ultimately drive you to feel hungrier later because it never actually got the thing that it needed. So. And then then you could, you could binge eat later, right? Is that sort of the risk? Well, binge eating is, Or, or, or is that the right word? Uh, risk, I would say has like loaded kind of judgment to it, but I understand what you're saying. Like, yeah. I was talking about binge. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the word binge. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The word binge, um, binge eating is when you feel out of control over your eating. It's, um, and when people use the word binge, I think it's overused a lot, but true, true binge eating is a sense of loss of control over an objectively large amount of food. Like anybody would look at that Mm -hmm. amount of food and say, yeah, that's a big amount of food. Um, But what research shows is that like people can struggle a lot with food relationship with food if they feel any sense of loss of control around their eating, regardless of the amount of food Mm -hmm. that it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a follow-up question? Yeah. Not to hijack your interview here i'll allow it yeah yeah yeah. Uh, this this is for the listeners this is the first episode where the two old millennials and a guest have all been on at the same time so this is uncharted territory here it's a real power um so i want to go back to to the yeah right the idea of mindfulness uh do you get shelly do you get pushback on it because it is so new and people i don't know play it off as this this hippie mentality that that doesn't really result in any any tangible effects for mindfulness specifically yeah yeah so <clears throat> i think what's tricky about mindfulness is that it's mindfulness as a practice is like the oldest practice 
in the history of a human being. Um, and so it's, it's with, it's within almost every religion. So whatever you want to look at, it's a spirituality practice, a lot of being present in the moment and just paying attention to what's happening. So whether it's through prayer or these kinds of things, it's like, you're in the moment, you're paying attention. And the more common day definition of mindfulness includes this piece of non-judgmental awareness. And that was really introduced by John Kabat-Zinn. And John Kabat-Zinn brought this over to the West um, years ago and did research with this. And he started the mindfulness-based stress reduction program for folks dealing with pain, chronic pain and illness, these kinds of things in in the hospitals. And they have seen just phenomenal results with that kind of work that people can live with their pain in really different ways without needing like opioids, as an example, when they go through these um, mindfulness-based stress reduction courses. And so in a lot of ways, it's not new, but what is new is that people talk about doing mindful everything, you know, like you see it on like every magazine, people will talk about it with, um, uh, I'm trying to think of what I just saw the other day. It's, I feel like it's everywhere in social media. And so I, I think there's pushback to that understanding of mindfulness, the way that it's portrayed in the media, but in the scientific community, there's been like huge strides with what it can be used for. Does that make sense? Yeah. What I'm saying? Yeah, it does. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so like, I don't, I, I feel like mindfulness gets a bad rap because I mean, I'll just say it like you look at these magazines. (laughs) So go to Whole Foods and stand in line as you buy, you know, your organic produce, look around who's shopping with you and then look at the magazines that are there um, in the checkout stand. And on Mindful Magazine, there was just a critique that was put out, I think, in the last year that was like, you know, mindfulness has been pitched as a um, thin, white, upper class woman's exercise more or less like every magazine is publishing it in this way. And so I think that's where some of the pushback comes from, from a lot of people um, in one way. And then in the other way, maybe there's the folks that you're talking about that are like, this is just some hippie dippy bullshit, you know? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. For sure. But if you're talking about like how mindfulness plays into intuitive eating over like kind of really specifically, um, there, it, it kind of gets woven into almost all of the principles, honestly. And, um, you know, one of the ways to think about mindfulness in the intuitive eating framework is that it's a set of skills. And so you're using mindfulness skills. So a non-judgmental state of present moment awareness is the definition as you are approaching each of the principles. And so the first one, which is reject the diet mentality, it's even having an awareness, you know, being able to have an awareness of how the culture around us impacts our day to day. So our, our, you know, mental, emotional state, um, what choices we make, how we judge other people, um, how we show up in spaces, who we advocate for. I mean, all that kind of stuff, even having that kind of awareness is a mindfulness practice in and of itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think that that first get, that's like the first tenet, you know, yeah. of, of intuitive eating is to reject the diet mentality. And I think on some level, I think most people get that. They're like, oh, you know, diets don't work. I think I just on a, a intellectual level, a lot of us get that, but we still kind of keep that hope in the back of our minds mm-hmm. that, oh, the next big diet's around the corner. Because I even, I find myself just subconsciously kind of intrigued by new diet fat, you know. <laughs> I haven't noticed I, that. I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, I'll like every now and then I'll try something out and, you know, I'll, I'll stick to it for a month or two at the most, you know, yeah, um, yeah. but uh, ultimately I'm just like, oh, you know, diets don't work. And mm-hmm. um, I, I try to focus more on just lifestyle stuff, which that to me is even a struggle too, but it's a little easier to be more mindful of it. But yeah, I think we all kind of do get it that diets don't work, but we still, we still go back to them for some reason. Yeah. I mean, and I, I know I tease you a little bit because when I first met you, Drew, um, I remember you were big into bananas. <laughs> yeah, and avocados. And only bananas. <laughs> that was like a whole thing. Um, no, but I mean, I hear you saying that, like, you know, logically, a lot of people can say diets don't work, but I would actually argue that the great majority of the population doesn't actually believe that because, um, 
because people hold on to the idea of weight loss as like the best and most profound thing that somebody can do for themselves and, and as the best option for their health. And maybe now in 2020, people don't call it a diet, but they're going to call it a lifestyle change, or they're going to call it wellness, or they're going to call it holistic living, those kinds of things. And almost all of those phrases are code for weight loss that if you are pursuing a healthy lifestyle, you know, the, the, the under implicit message is um, you'll probably lose weight and be in a smaller body. And it's just not true. It's just not true for most people. Um, We know that the biggest predictor for body size is genetics. And so if you look at, there's so much science, um, weight science that around body size in general. And when you really break it down, um, the biggest predictor ultimately ends up being genetics. And we only have control over a very small percentage of what our bodies do. And I think that's one of the really tough parts for people to come to terms with is they want to say, well, isn't it healthy to pursue weight loss? Like, how can it be healthy to be in a bigger body? And, you know, the other thing that is really important to remember is that we can't tell what somebody's health is based on the size of their, their body. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I know a lot of, you know, people who you do, if you would look at them, you wouldn't think they were in shape or whatever, but you know, they, they are live very active lifestyles and eat well and everything like that. And they're very happy and healthy and feel great and everything like that. And I think, um, I mean, that's another, I think that isn't, that's another tenet of intuitive eating is, you know, using movement to, um, and feeling the difference rather than, um, you know, going after a certain body type or, um, weight goal or whatever. And that's something I've kind of been doing lately is just, I've never really stuck to a, uh, a workout regimen. Um, uh, but I think lately too, I've, I've just been like, you know what, just getting movement in and feeling the difference and feeling that I have more energy and that sort of thing. And not worrying about, you know, physique or whatever it is, makes a huge difference in the way you approach, um, just wellness in general, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'll I'll jump in. I mean, Shelley referenced this earlier, Drew. I mean, it's way different for us. I do. Yes. I do yeah. not care if I have pecs or abs. <laughs> like I don't at all. Yeah. I know a lot of guys yeah. do, but it but it's you know it's easier it's easier for us to be like whatever. I mean, who cares who's on the cover of Men's Fitness? I think the impact of that is is felt a lot more. Um, uh, by women, which Shelley attested to earlier. And yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just add like, you know, one question I would have for you guys is when you've, you know, exercised or like, I know Nate, you'll use like Strava for mountain biking and that kind of stuff. And that'll tell you all kinds of data. Right. And so like fitness yeah. watches and all this stuff tells you all kinds of stuff. And I know a lot of women who, when they work out, they have, they have to burn X calories or it doesn't count. And I say that in quotes, you know, it doesn't count as exercise. So the whole focus is on how much am I burning? How long have I gone? And I just will ask you, have you ever thought that mountain bike ride didn't count because I didn't burn X calories? No, no you I, know? I don't even think it counts. Yeah. I don't care. Right, right. And that's, yeah. The, yeah. that's such a huge difference, right? Yeah. So exercise, yeah, sure. exercise gets... Um, really tangled up in diet culture. And so, so just to backtrack, like there's just so much to unpack with all of this. Um, and Drew, mm-hmm. I know yeah, you're like, we've been all over the place. I know. Somewhere. And I know yeah. you're asking questions about all these principles. Just the first principle is so big and in it for men, but also, but which is to, just to rejog, yeah. rejog our memories is rejecting the that mentality. Yeah. It's just so big because it just, it can really impact the rest of of the work. So if you, you know, are exercising solely to burn calories, a lot of times people will start a diet, start exercising, and then, um, you know, they'll, they get burnt out because they're not eating enough. You know, they don't have enough gas in the tank. Then they push their body too hard and exercise to burn X calories. And then over time, it gets really hard to sustain that because you're not, fueling your body appropriately for the amount of work that it's doing. And so then exercise becomes a, t- a chore or a task to complete, you know? And I mean, mm-hmm. you've probably heard tons of people talk about like how much they hate exercising. You know, it's like, it's hard to get motivated. You want to do it, but like, why would you want to do it? If the whole time you're exercising, you're thinking about how much you hate your body or that you have to do it because you're not good enough, you know? And I think that's a really yeah. common experience for a lot of people who 
get wrapped up in diet culture is that exercise has no joy to it. There's no movement. That's fun. Um, there it's just, it's self, it's a lot of self-loathing that's motivating. Well, and then add on top of that, all that, like the judgment, Mm -hmm. um, that you feel internally and externally, you know, Mm -hmm. um, like from you've already alluded to this, but you know, we have this kind of, um, the, the idea that, you're either a good or bad person based on what you eat right. or, or how much the exercise morality. you yeah. participate in or anything like that, which it, it kind of, it almost reminds me a little bit about, it's kind of like, you know, like super religious people who judge people based on, you know, the choices around their sexuality or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's almost that bad in some, some circles, you know, it, you compare people judging you for what you eat or how much, how much or how little exercise you do it's almost kind of like this religious fervor around it. Dieting dieting and the wellness diet in particular have people do absolutely respond in the same way of like a religious. It's like people are so wrapped up into it. It's become who they are. It's become a set of their value system. And um, when someone tries to challenge that, it's almost like challenging the core of who that person is. If they just ascribe to it so much that, they have right. to be, you know, smaller body or for, you know, men, maybe bigger body. Um, they have to weigh X pounds, um, eat X amount of food or, or eat clean or eat keto or what, you know, all this kind of stuff. And if they don't, mm-hmm. they're bad. And so the morality around food really complicates things too, um, for people on both sides. So whether you feel like you're not good enough because you're not doing it or because you feel better than for eating in a certain way when really food should be neutral. It shouldn't be, there should not be morality um, in those kinds of choices. Right. So let me tell you really quick, because I feel like um, Drew just, I, I don't think one of the things that I think is really interesting around this kind of stuff that people don't understand about dieting is that there is not a single research study, not one, that shows that um, intentional weight loss persists long-term. There's not one. Yeah, I, yeah. I saw that. There's like a 2018 review of that, I think, or something like yeah. that. Just like a year or two ago, a study came out that showed that. Yep, yeah, there's not that's, one that's, single study. That's nuts. So when you start to look at that and you think, okay, that seems crazy, right? I mean, with the amount of people that you know mm-hmm. that pursue weight loss. And we know that by year five after dieting, most people have gained back the weight that they lost plus more. And so one of the ways that we will often talk about this is like, you know, health professionals are one of the biggest culprits for um, recommending weight loss to their, to their patients. Mm -hmm. And it's like, would you, um, I've heard Evelyn Triboli say this, would you recommend a medicine to a patient that worked in the short term, but by year five, as an example, um, gave them worse heart disease than they have now, you know, as an example, and like no medical professional is going to do that. You know what I mean? But people don't understand that with dieting rebound weight gain is almost a sure thing in 95 to 97, I think percent of the population, it's almost a sure thing. Right. Right. And so, I mean, it sounds crazy that, you know, that, that, that happens that, you know, there's 100% of diets fail basically Mm -hmm. more or less. Uh, uh, but at the same time, if you step back, it kind of makes sense because about every four or five years, three to five years, whatever, a new diet fad comes out Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, just starts the cycle all over again. And what is it about our psychology, I guess, that, that makes us, I don't know, kind of prone to that. What is it about, you know, human nature that instead of just kind of being able to step back and see that, oh, you know, food is neutral and, um, there are just very, you know, sorry for this, intuitive ways to, you know, manage my health. Why, why do we fall victim to that? Is it because of like this kind of like pill popping society type thing, cultural thing where we, we want the quick fix? Because I, I'm not sure it's that even. I know, I think a lot of people understand it's not a quick fix. Yeah, I think it's the fantasy that um, mm. dieting says will happen. I mean, if you look at any weight loss ad or you look at any fitness influencer, um or you even just listen to the people around you talk about bodies, you know, there is a huge problem with the way that, gosh, there's just some, I have a trillion thoughts in my mind. So the the (laughs) fantasy that diets sell, yes, they sell weight loss, but what they also sell are things like you will have more confidence. You will have more happiness. You will be in a relationship. 
Yeah. Like all of a sudden, all the things you've ever worried about aren't going to be a problem anymore. You know, like we are fed those messages. And one of the exercises in the intuitive eating workbook is to dissect the fantasy that you've been sold by dieting. And Mm. a lot of it has to do with quality of life. And then when you pair that, those really powerful marketing images, you know, and if you just start to listen to the way that people talk about weight, um, people assign incredibly negative qualities to people who are fat or in big bodies. And people mm-hmm. assign very positive qualities to people who are thin or in small bodies. And so, you know, you will hear people say horrendously discriminatory stuff about people in big bodies all the time, just casually, just casually. Um, and so there's this kind of water that we're swimming in that has these super negative stereotypes about our worthiness, our, our self-worth that's tied up in the size of our body too. Um, and they've studied that. I mean, they've studied the discrimination that people in big bodies face, even at things like job interviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I guess, where do you strike the balance though in that? Because it, obviously, you know, obesity itself is a, a health hazard, right? Um, and I, I'm not saying what we need to like fat shame people in order to get rid of obesity. I think it's a terrible way to go about it. But I think sometimes what, what feels like a subtle, to some people, it feels like a subtle, like, oh, you know, you know, obesity is a bad thing can be a trigger for someone else. Where do you strike that balance? So, or, or am I thinking about this wrong? Well, I don't know. I don't know if you're thinking about it wrong. I think you're thinking about it like literally everybody else on the planet. Um, I think it's, you know, when we look at weight science, when we look at weight science, there is so many problems with the way that we have studied um, health around body size and mm. weight. And when people talk about obesity as being a major health concern, what they're often talking about are the correlations between BMI and things like heart disease. Is that kind of what you're talking mm. about? And that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess just like ectopic fat composition and so, everything like that. <laughs> just a casual, just a casual <laughs> yeah. word. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So the thing that you have to remember, though, is that those studies um, often leave out a whole lot of factors. And so one of the things that we look at now are things like stress and um, discriminatory experiences um, and uh, what is the word? Trauma, weight bias, all these kinds of things. Um, and how that impacts someone's health. And it's nearly impossible to tease apart some of these things in these studies. And so just to give you an example, um, in my, when I was formerly pursuing a doctoral degree, um, we we used to study um, stress and we used to study um, kids who were quote at risk for developing diabetes. And um, you know, there was, there's, difficulties in all study designs. But one of the things that this lab that I used to work in was able to look at is that when we decreased stress, overall stress, or when we decreased depression in youth, um, and this is just one example, their risk for diabetes went way down, even if their weight and BMI or body size didn't change. And so there are so many other factors playing into somebody's health other than their weight and the size of their body. Uh, right. And, and it's easy for us to, to point at their weight and, and the, the most direct conclusion mm-hmm. we can, and easiest conclusion we draw is that, you know, they overeat well, and they don't take care of themselves. Weight, weight is tangible. You can mm-hmm. see it. You right. can yeah. see a right. thin body. You can see a big body, but what you can't see is the stress and anxiety it takes decades for worth, yeah. somebody to get what they are told uh, is a healthy body. Mm-hmm. That's a horribly vicious cycle. It's completely, mm-hmm. exactly. That's a good way to put it. And then okay. people face a whole lot of discrimination on the daily. And so when people are, when people who are in big or fat bodies are interviewed about their daily experience, the kinds of commentary that they experience at the grocery store, when they're out to eat, when they go to the gym, all kinds of stuff, it's just, it's, it's microaggressions constantly. And how do you measure that kind of chronic stress and discrimination and the amount of cortisol that pumps through your body every time you go into 
public, you know, that's a really hard thing to, um, to tease apart. And so like the weight stigma is just a really, um, important area of research that's coming out now as well to look at how that impacts, you know, things like cardiovascular disease, which I feel like is one of the more common things that you hear people comment on. Okay. So I guess to kind of answer my own question by looking at the other factors, all the the myriad factors that are all um, contributing to this, I think what you're saying is we can really reduce a lot of that stigma or reduce a lot of the the stress around it too for, for people who are struggling with this. I mean, this is so complicated because you think about somebody who's just genetically in a bigger body and yep. is healthy, uh, you know, not doesn't have a lot of stress, eats you know, eats the way they should and they're healthy, but they're in a bigger body for through no fault of their own mm. and constantly getting stigmatized in society. So, I mean, that's your whole life is jumping over that hurdle, mm-hmm. I, you know? And, and I mean, not to be bleak, but I don't see that going away anytime mm. soon. Well, no. I mean, that's, it's a, it's a major problem. I mean, it's some folks will say this is one of the frontiers kind of of like a social justice movement that has not taken off yet. So people talk a lot about like race and um, gender and ableism and these, you know, socioeconomic class, this kind of stuff. And um, saying that basically like body size at some point has got to get picked up um, in a, in a similar way and never to compare types of oppression. And that's not my intention here at all, but, but to say like when people experience discriminatory, things in their life throughout their whole life and, and teasing, bullying, that kind of stuff um, yeah. impacts what happens to someone's body size throughout their life. And so that stress is chronic. It's everywhere. Um, and people think it's okay to, to comment. I think it's one of the, I don't know, qualities about folks that people in the public still think it's fine to just like have an opinion about and voice it, if that makes sense. Yeah. The thing I was going to add on, Nate, was just, um, so if you think about that, you've got the body, the body part, stress around body. And then Mm -hmm. if you are pursuing weight loss and you are constantly stressed about what you're eating. So you go to sit down at a meal at a restaurant with your family and friends, and all you can think about are what's the lowest calorie option? What fits my clean eating plan? What's keto? Um, how am I going to feel later? Is this going to mess up my macros? La, 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 You've now effectively yeah. spent your entire meal worried and stressed. So there's the cortisol piece again about what you're going to put into your body. So then your body's in a stress response when you eat, which can then mimic food intolerance. So that's a whole other area that we can get into yeah. like around this gluten-free <laughs> fad. Um, you've got this, you know, so then it's like, Oh, I knew it. I shouldn't have had carbs. When I eat carbs, I feel sick, but like it could very well be the stress that you've created now in your own self around eating carbs. And the other thing that happens is you don't connect at all with the people that you're with. And so one of the things, one of the best things we know to, to, um, encourage well-being and mental health in people is relationships, connecting relationships. And so effectively, this kind of stuff can even impact the way that we show up with our friends and family in moments that are supposed to be really positive and turn out to be very stressful and negative. Yeah. Yeah, do, you, do you remember, I, I don't even think they talk about this research anymore, but like, you know, they're, they're saying um, one of the best predictors of you know, a child's well-being or even the family's well-being was, you know, how many times a week they eat together. Mm. Um, I, I, I don't think I've heard anything about those kind of studies anymore because I just, I don't know if it, people don't do it anymore or what, mm-hmm. but that was a big thing growing up. And I, I don't know, we, like, like my family always ate, we ate, you know, four or five, maybe even sometimes seven meals every night per week uh, together. And that was like a, it was a, bonding thing. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was, food was just there. It was neutral. Mm-hmm. The thing that brought us together was that we were the family eating together. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. And then imagine know. if you've got um, someone in the family who is in a larger body and they're getting teased every time they go to reach for food or eat something. I mean, it just completely ruins the entire oh, I didn't think experience. That, yeah. And we know that familial teasing, um, whether from parents or siblings is one of the, is a really big predictor of um, eating problems later on in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, in men and women equally. Or ooh, I don't actually know. I'm not sure. I think yeah. so. I think so, but I can't say for certain. 
Mm-hmm. We've mentioned it a few times now, and it, there is a big gender difference. Um, but at the same time, too, I think there's also kind of an, un- as you already alluded to, Shelley, there's already, there's an underreporting or um, underrepresentation of men with not just eating problems, but I think just in general, you know, um, the, the stigma around mental health, mental health yeah. for men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In general. And it, this is one part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, eating disorders have a look, yeah. you know, I think is the thing that I would say is like when we, t- when you talk to someone about eating disorders, they think about an underweight white woman. That's who people think about right, when they right. think about eating disorders, when in reality, eating disorders impact everybody. It doesn't matter, matter, um, race, gender, SES, any of that stuff. It's, it's a very widespread spread problem. And um, they're, the amount of eating disorders is growing incredibly. I mean, I, I can't remember the stat off the top of my head. It just went out of my mind, but they have certainly doubled within, I can't remember how many years now, but they're just, it's just getting worse. And dieting is one of the biggest predictors for developing an eating disorder later on in life. Um, Do you think that's because of the rise of social media over the last 20 years? About eating disorders? Yeah. I think it certainly contributes to it. Absolutely. Um, Because I think that disordered eating habits have been glorified by influencers. And then you've got um, widespread misinformation that happens on social media with younger folks specifically. Um, And so I think that is a huge contributor to it. So what, okay, so we've talked a lot about all the, oh, <laughs> the mayhem and the disorder and all of this. This um, is a, a complicated issue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's obviously the, the, the scope of what we've covered. You can tell how complicated it is. But if, if you were uh, kind of to, to sit one, someone down and say, you know, this is, this is an, a, a healthy approach to food and kind of the intuitive eating um, philosophy kind of how would you guide someone through that just big picture well i think it's such a it depends tough question (laughs) it depends this is like the answer that every person who works in therapy will answer every question with and drew i say it because um so the intuitive eating paradigm is not necessarily meant to be followed one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, it's laid right, out right. that way because you have to in a book. You know, that's just like the way that it right. works. But, um, yep. and there are two parts starting with rejecting diet culture and ending with gentle nutrition makes the most sense for the most people. Um, but for most like folks that I work with, we start with wherever they're at. And I would say in my practice, and this isn't true, I don't think for every, I don't know if this is true for every intuitive eating practitioner, but the most common person that comes in saying I need help with intuitive eating are folks who have experienced binge eating or feel really out of control um, because they're worried about how it's impacting their weight. That's like almost always um, the person who walks into my office and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, binge eating, we started talking about that a little bit in the beginning, but I think it's really misunderstood. So binge eating for a long time, people thought that you needed to treat with like cognitive behavioral therapy and these different kinds of things, or that it was really morally wrong or that it was bad. People will also talk about emotional eating. Have you heard that phrase before? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And like, these things are not inherently bad. Like we emotionally eat all the time for celebration. You know, if you have a cake, when it's someone's birthday, that's emotional eating, but emotional eating in response to negative emotion is so demonized because of the stigma around weight gain. Most of the patients you see say, okay, I want to focus more on intuitive eating because I'm suffering from binge eating. Yeah. I mean, my, my thought immediately went to, well, let's focus on the problem causing you to binge eat, Mm -hmm. which leads down a, I'm assuming a fairly complex web of other issues. Well, it can, it can, but almost always if someone, not always like this, there's never an absolute when you're talking about working with human beings. Um, but a lot of times when there's binge eating, there's restriction and, um, whether or not there is, you know, comorbidity, so depression, anxiety, that kind of stuff. Um, There might be, but for most people, if they are experiencing loss of control around food, almost always you can trace it back to restriction of some kind that there's, doesn't have to be a diet necessarily, but like, um, some sort of physical restriction. So you're literally not allowing yourself to eat the food or mental restriction, which is like 
you eat the food and then you spend time beating yourself up about it or telling yourself, I'm never doing this again. And the body is super savvy. So the body is going to do anything that it can to help you survive. So let me, I guess, break down something really quick, which we haven't talked about yet, which is really foundational. Um, but when people go on a diet or they restrict food that they're eating, the body, the body doesn't know that that's on purpose. Does that make sense? It thinks that you're going through a yeah. famine. Like your body is like, okay, I'm experiencing food scarcity right now. And so it's like an evolutionary trait that has kept us alive throughout the years. So in, you know, in our course of human history, people never tried to lose weight on purpose because it was against their better judgment. Um, well, if you were bigger, like in olden times, mm -hmm. the, like if you were bigger, that was bigger was better. If you were skin, you were poor. Mm -hmm. And like that's the way it was viewed. Yeah. And evolutionarily, like if you are too thin, you're not going to persist through a famine. That's just not going to happen, you know? Right. And so, um, so when the body goes into a state of hunger or starvation and it's prolonged, the body does all kinds of crazy things to fix that problem. So one thing it does is starts to hold on to more fat as an example. Um, another thing that it does is it makes foods taste better. <laughs> so when you hear people talk about um, dieting and they're like, they're like, I have just the worst sweet tooth. You know, you like hear people say that all the time. A lot of times it's the restrictive. There's been some restriction around sweets. And so sweets taste incredible. Like their taste buds are heightened to like that flavor more and they will like yeah. fats more sweets, car, you know, this kind of stuff a little bit more. Um, they're more cal calorically dense. Um, it will, your body makes the parts of your brain fire that make you focus more on food. So people who restrict, um, will talk a lot about not being able to stop thinking about when their next meal is, or they become kind of obsessed with food. And there's been, there's been studies on this too. Like there's this one really incredible study called the Minnesota starvation experiment, where they took the most psychologically and physically fit college aged men that they could find and put them on a semi starvation diet of 1700 calories. And I just want to preface this by saying, cause I don't know that the two of you guys will know this. There are many women who would never dream of eating 1700 calories. So I just want to say that's like, that's like being out of control for a lot of women. Okay. Oh. And that was considered semi starvation. And what they were doing this to study the, the physiological effects of starvation and refeeding on these men. But what was sh shocking and fascinating that came out of the study was the psychological impact. These men came out of this study. And again, it was semi-starvation at 1700 calories. And they couldn't stop thinking about food. Some of them went on to become chefs or recipe writers. They, um, these wow. men who had never wow. had, yeah, had never had um, problems with food before started binge eating and developed eating disorders. They lost interest in sex. Huh. <laughs> you know, that's like an evolution. <laughs> I just feel like. Wow. <laughs> okay. Most well, I'm men going usually up to are like. 3,500 calories a day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like this kind of stuff, though. I, it's just, it's the whole body turns everything into a focus on finding food, you know? And um, those men, some of them persisted with some of these problems, psychological problems for months and months afterward until they were refed long enough that the body could start trusting again that they weren't going to be starving. So just to come back around to say when people diet and restrict food intentionally, their body fights against them on purpose to survive. Yeah. You know, and how, so how, how long did it take to. I'm just curious, how long did it take to circle back around until your body was like recalibrated for lack of a better word in that study? Did it, did, yeah. I can't remember in the, the, I can't remember the exact timeline because there were, I think if, if I remember correctly, there were three groups they were grouped in and they each had refeeding at different rates, uh, uh, okay. at different caloric rates. And uh, if I, there, it, it depends. And then it depends for each person too, um, yeah, yeah, is of their genetics and all that kind of stuff. But Gosh, I want to say for some of them, it was six months, a year or more um, to come back around. Huh. It, you said something there, though. I, I mean, you've said it several times now that it depends for each person. And I think that's maybe the biggest takeaway people get out of this. And out of intuitive eating is the mindfulness part. It depends on each person. And it really just is about paying attention, paying more attention to to your 
individual signals and your individual cues that you respond to. Um, I think that's a big, that was a big thing for me anyway, you know, not just, um, not just listening to what other people are saying, but just kind of like, what, what do I, what feels good to me? Mm-hmm. And, you know, do I like, do I like running or do I like jogging, you know, and, and, and cardio stuff? Or do I like more resistance stuff when I'm working out and what kind of foods do I respond to well? And do I enjoy and that kind of thing? And just stop listening to everyone else. Mm-hmm. Really. Very, very difficult to do. And you got a multi-billion dollar industry telling you that, that, skinny makes you happy i mean i i understand why the problem exists i really do especially when you're young and you're you know your brain's still forming and you're Mm -hmm. trying to figure this out Mm -hmm. um i mean that's man what a what a tough thing to to navigate it's incredibly hard to so adolescence is like when we see a lot of eating disorders come online and um Again, I feel like this is something that you guys won't know, but when girls, young girls are like about to start menstruating, they have to put on a certain percentage of body fat in order to do that. And so young adolescent girls gain weight so they can menstruate, like to do an evolutionary process that their body is meant to do. And that's the onset of a ton of eating disorders for girls. And so even that is just, you look at that and you think that is crazy that girls are shamed for gaining weight to do this thing that their body is meant to do. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Added an incredibly impression. Uh, yeah. yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. Man. So it just goes way back. And and when you look at the research too, I mean, you'll see um, with girls, a lot of girls start their first diet in elementary school. They start trying to lose weight when they're in elementary school. And I don't know if you've been around young elementary school kids recently, but they're little. That's little, you know? Yeah. So it's huge. It's a huge issue. And intuitive eating is the the ultimate goal with it is to come back around and like eat the way that our bodies know how to do. Um, you, if you watch little, little kids eat who haven't had, um, their, like any, any of this stuff kind of impact them yet. And they have parents who have healthy, um, relationships with food. You'll notice that like some meals, kids, they'll just like go ham on one type of food as an example, you know, like they just want that thing. And it's, it's, they are able to regulate and they know like their bodies are telling them eat this thing. Mm-hmm. And if you chart a lot of kids eating over the course of like a week, as an example, they eat very balanced, but meal to meal might look a little wonky, but their bodies know how to calibrate. And that's what intuitive eating is trying to do for adults is to like get back to that place mm-hmm. where, you know, maybe not every single meal has vegetable starch protein but like over the course of seven days or or 14 days like can we get to a place where we're listening to the cues in our bodies and then the nutrition kind of happens you know well and i think we have been basically conditioned to believe that we don't know what's best Mm -hmm. for our bodies yes and so it's it's really just what you're saying is getting back to that I, I and I think that's where the rub is for some people where, where they'll hear this and they say, "Oh, you just have to, you know, uh, listen to your body." You're like, "Well, my body just wants to eat cake and ice cream all the that's time." That's the biggest. Like, that's not- the biggest. <laughs> yes, thing that people say. That's the number one. Right. Yeah. Right, and uh, I think what I just realized is that you know you listen to your body, yes, and what it wants to consume. But the other side of that is too is listen to your body when it needs to stop eating for one and and when it needs to rest and when it needs to be active. Mm -hmm. I know for me, you know, like I sit in front of a computer a lot. And um, if I just do a check about every 30, 30 to 45 minutes and just say, okay, how am I feeling? And if I'm feeling a little bit lower energy, then I know I need to just get up and do some squats and pushups real quick. And then I'll be right back at it. And so for me, that's the same kind of thing only with food. If you're saying, okay, you know, am I full or am I hungry? And what am I hungry for? And why might I be? I think that's a, a a good way to look at it. Yeah. And the thing though, Drew, that can be tricky for people is they, a lot of folks who have engaged in disordered eating or like are skeptical of this will accidentally turn intuitive eating into the hunger and fullness diet. And so they're like, only eat when you're hungry and you have to stop when you're full and you, you know what I mean? And there's, there's still these Mm -hmm. rules, but the actual thing with intuitive eating is sometimes you eat when you're not hungry and that's okay. And sometimes you eat, um, you know, cakes and cookies and that stuff. And that's okay. And the science behind that, that the thing that you said, where it's like, some people say, you know, my body will only want 
chips and cake and cookies and you know mm-hmm. shit foods or whatever like that's like the that's like the first thing everybody says about intuitive eating and there's actually tons of science to support um the opposite which is it's habituation science and um it, which you can also just call like the leftovers principle basically like when you have leftovers in your fridge the first couple of times that you eat it like it tastes good and it's fine but the fifth time that you have to eat the same meal you're like ugh you know really and so with like chocolate as an example for people who feel like they have this crazy sweet tooth that they can't handle when they have mental restriction or physical restriction around the chocolate of course every time they eat it it's exciting it's fun they're telling themselves they're not going to have it again and so of course they stay in this loop where it's like it's got a lot of emotional weight to it. Does that make sense? Like, Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm so psyched and this is what I want. But if they continue to allow it and they go along with one of the principles around um, unconditional permission to eat, they, um, the habituation thing is, is going to come along so that once they start to have access, this is actually out of the principle, it's called making peace with food. Um, It's, they have access to the food. Their body knows that they have access to the food. They can have it whenever they want. And over time, that food loses its sparkle. You know, it's, it's, and it's backed up by, again, it's backed up by studies. And so um, over time, you can tune into when your body wants like um, a cookie and when it doesn't, or when your body is actually craving like starchy vegetables or a green salad, like, on my own personal journey, I can tell you within the last, I used to hate vegetables, hate them so much. Um, and since I've done intuitive eating for myself, I will sometimes wake up and be like, all I want today is I literally just want a green salad. That's like all that I want with, you know, carrots <laughs> and whatever on it. And it's, that is a really different experience for me than I've had in my life. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So That's I mean, geez. habituation is is a really big part of this. And that's where people feel the most skeptical. Um, they don't believe mm-hmm. that will happen for them, but the novelty. Because society says it won't. Right. Right. Well, and that's, that's what I was saying. It was that, you know, we've been conditioned to think that our bodies actually don't know what's best for them and that we need to somehow overcome them with some, you know, Herculean effort uh, when it's actually much more simple than that. And I think the point you're kind of making too, is that, when you do restrict things, that's human nature to want it more. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that's that we should understand that about ourselves. That should be intuitive. Yeah. In yeah. Itself, just, so. just as an example, like that's happening right now. Um, you guys know we're in the middle of a remodel in our kitchen. We haven't had access to an oven since November. Okay. Mm-hmm. Literally the only thing I want to eat are baked sweet potatoes. That's the only thing I want. I want baked sweet potatoes and like a muffin. Like baked <laughs> We uh we're recording this on April 18th just for <laughs> context. Give <laughs> <laughs> you guys an idea of how long that's been. It's, it's been it's so long. And I don't I don't like that kind of stuff is not like a you know, I'm it's it's nothing that I care about on any other given day, but because we have zero access to it, I'm just like that is the thing that sounds the best, you know. And I'm sure <laughs> as as soon as we get an oven, it's it's going to wear off immediately, you know that whole that whole thing. But and you and you can't even go over to somebody else's house to do it because uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> Man, that's a tough spot, isn't it tough? <laughs> okay, so we're in the middle of this pandemic, and now we're all kind of sitting at home. I know my diet's changed a little bit, just because, you know, almost out of necessity. Mm -hmm. Um, What have you seen or what are you looking at? Or have you seen any interesting trends or anything like that um, around the pandemic and eating and Mm -hmm. fitness and diet culture and all that? Yeah. So um, when we talk about restriction, one form that we haven't touched on is food, like actual food scarcity. So folks who grew up in households, maybe um, Mm -hmm. that don't have access to food, um, for whatever reason, food scarcity is like a real issue for a lot of people. And right now, food scarcity might be real or perceived for people in their houses, depending on what's going on where they're living. And so, um, you know, you'll see lots of jokes from folks like, um, oh, it's day four of quarantine, and I've like eaten all my snacks. But um, for a lot of people, that's like a truth, because the threat of food scarcity can lead to binge like behaviors. Mm. Um, yeah. And then on the flip side, the threat of such 
uncontrolled stress and trauma that's going on um, in the world outside of, of us can lead people to really disordered eating behaviors because it feels like control. So mm. dieting feels like I can control what I eat. And that is almost like a, um, in the moment feels stress relieving, you know, when it's happening, mm. but long-term can actually provide more stress overall. But it's one of the more common things that you see around the development of eating disorders is this feeling of need of control. Mm. Well, I, I, the one thing that's kind of keeping me on any semblance of a routine right now are meal times, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I don't, I, I guess I haven't paid a whole lot of attention to how that's played into any sort of larger, like consumption habits of mine or anything, but um, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's you see, crazy times. you see, if you get on social media, you'll see tons of people being like, don't gain the quarantine 15, you know, as one example. Right. And that's such, yeah. it's such a relevant example right now of fat shaming. And um, using mm-hmm. fear to sell diets, using people's fear. And, and if you really think about it, like just from a human being, you know, like care, caring about other human beings, it's sickening to think about people preying on someone's fear around weight gain to make money right now. Yeah. Well, uh, that the, the, the 20th century really ushered in that style of marketing mm-hmm. and advertising. Yeah, and we've just, we've, just now we've brought it to, uh, you know, a scale on the, just digital the level, diet industry. Right. Yeah. Right. And lots of industries, but especially, I mean, that's an easy one to like needle at people's insecurities yeah. um, is around, uh, you know, how they look. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, the other thing I'll just say that hasn't really been talked about, I mean, there's, we haven't talked about all 10 principles and I don't think we necessarily need to, but no, um, need to, yeah. the last, the last principle is <laughs> about gentle nutrition. And I think that's the other thing people always critique intuitive eating about is like, oh, it's just about, you know, junk food or whatever. But actually the last principle is really about repairing your relationship with foods that do um, work toward holistic health, you know, so, mm-hmm. so that things that don't make you feel stressed that, um, that make you feel good, satiated, satisfied, um, and keep your body running well. I mean, that is part of the whole process, but we can't introduce it until the end because people conflate it so bad with dieting. So. Right. Mm -hmm. Obviously, like you said, all of these tie into mindfulness, but for, for me, even if I'm craving, uh, you know, a food, there's a good example. Like yesterday I crushed a whole bunch of wings, um, just some, uh, some hot wings. So good. And I, I felt it the rest of the day and even into today and I, I or whatever, I, I don't <laughs> judge myself based on it or anything like that. You know, like I was, I was emotional eating for one because we were bored and just being in tune with that and knowing that, um, and that's helpful for me anyway. I don't know if it's a, yeah, no, but that's the whole point, Drew. That's the whole point. It's like you had this eating experience and you're tuned in to what happens when you're eating that and you're not judging yourself around the experience. So it's not like you walked away and thought, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. You know, this is so, I'm terrible. I have no control, la, 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 la. You know, that you're not doing that whole process. That's a big, that's a big part. That's a win for one. And the second win is to be able to say, whoa, you know, when I eat X number of wings, this is what happens to my body. And that is having objective awareness around what's happening so that the next time that you go to eat, you get to choose if you want to incorporate that information into your choice or not. Does that make sense? I see. Like, yes, yeah. you, you've got the information. And for most people, once they get rid of the restriction and the shame around eating, it's, it, it's, um, it's not enjoyable to stuff themselves silly with hot wings, knowing that they're going to suffer for the whole next day. Right. You know? Right. And so there's a different, there's a choice point there and there's more awareness. And so if you're talking about mindfulness, yeah, that's a whole part of it, you know, that comes around, but you can't get to that place, um, without getting rid of the shame and judgment because a lot of people who have, um, you know, who deal with like binge eating and that kind of stuff, they'll say, well, I still choose to eat until I make myself sick. And it's because of the restriction, the shame, the judgment, that kind of stuff that still exists. So until you can get right, they haven't addressed that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can talk for four more hours about this. So just cut me off. This, <laughs> no. Um, well, I can confidently say I'm more confused now than when we began, which uh, it's a good sign. Which is a good sign that, that, that uh, we got a lot to learn. Yeah, or I have yeah. a lot to learn. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shh. 
Shelly, you're awesome. Like I said, you're you're our in-house therapist, and um, we we pay you in friendship, which is probably not yeah. an equal payment. For and, and, you're, and you're welcome. Uh-huh. <laughs> God. It, Thank you for doing this. We we really appreciate it, yeah. and I, I hope everyone sees that um, I'm I'm the true leader of the show, and Nate is um, <laughs> just just useless. We'll have a discussion off air, Drew. <laughs> thanks for having thanks shelly mm-hmm. thanks shelly if you like this episode check out more at two old millennials.com